0: Madison here, just before you start, this show looks at domestic abuse head on. This particular episode starts and ends in a hospital. And while it's an uplifting story, it's also a bit heavy at times. So be gentle with yourself, listen with care, and know that support is readily available for any unpleasant feelings. Check out our website for a list of people you can speak to if the going gets tough.
1: Hospitals are a disarray of noise and distress. Newborns cry and whimper, as do their tired mothers. Men pace hallways jittery and cradling hot cheap coffee, courtesy of one Jerry built cafe on the ground level. Visitors course parking fees, the weather, the restless children, their restless roommates. Alarm sounds regularly and with urgency. It was December sticky and unforgiving with its heat, and it certainly wasn't the first time I had been admitted. By the time I had found myself in a Perth hospital's burns unit, I had already given birth to four beautiful children. I had already tackled labor and all that comes with it, but it was different now. Things were different now. Hospitals are placed riddled with angst and desperation. Time stands still. Faces merge into each other, and aging flowers and tired bodies ebb and flow out of sterile rooms. I don't remember all of the names of the nurses who tended to me, who waited for my singed body to adjust to shower temperature, room temperature, bed temperature. But I do remember this. My time in the burn unit was transformative, important. It was a safe haven, a singular solid place I could just be in. Sometimes in the night, I'd wake to nightmare of my husband, and the nurse would run in only to recite calming affirmations, patting my head, saying things like, Roya, you're in hospital, you're safe, you're okay. People cared, and I noticed. It was that simple. I was alive. What does it mean for a space to become yours? Like really, truly become yours. What does it look like? Does it look like jangly earrings on an enthusiastic nurse getting into Christmas cheer? Does it look like the way a woman from the Muslim Women's Support Center, a compassionate, kind, and gentle woman, pasted Eid Mubarak posters around my bed to celebrate the end of Ramadan? Was it love in the shape of festive decoration, of trusting my story? You're listening to Tinder, a podcast that interrogates what happens once women leave abusive relationships, once scars fade and change, once justice is pursued, and once we become the authors of our own narrative. What happens when we are given permission to howl, to be mad and sad and wounded? What happens when good-natured nurses hold our hand while changing our bandages, only to say,
2: It's okay if you want to cry and scream. It's okay.
1: What happens when you venture into the real world of TAFE classrooms, of parenthood, of late-night dancing brazenly to Bollywood classics with hard-earned new friends? Of standing up in front of your religious community and declaring your truth? Of reminding other women of what they do and don't deserve? What happens after the court orders and the phone calls, the self-doubt and frustration, the grief and the growth? I received a telephone call
0: early one morning from an agency that I frequently worked alongside with information that a young woman was in hospital with serious burns, believed to have possibly been caused by a family member. I made inquiries with the hospital and later met Roya for the first time. With a small staff, I was a sergeant in charge of the family unit within Western Australia Police and had the primary role to inform and guide police officers in matters of family and domestic violence.
1: That's Carol, who worked tirelessly in Western Australian Police Force, who handled my case and who later became my friend.
0: At the time, a government review of restraining orders was being undertaken, and strategies to improve the response to complaints of family violence by the various
1: involved agencies were being implemented. When I moved to Perth from Pakistan, I was 14 years old. A child in every sense of the word. My teenage years were not reckless or formative, like money and adolescence. Instead they were restrictive and isolating. I was not permitted to make friends or immerse myself in this new foreign country. I stayed quiet and restrained in my husband's home, a home I shared with his family, tending to my domestic duties. Because of this, meeting people like Carol, people invested in my case and my recovery was my first foray into friendship. Despite how much my burns throbbed, ached and stung, my world was changing for the better around me and for the first time I could see some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. I was ready.
0: Roya is very special and I'm extremely proud of her achievements and of the beautiful woman she is and how much she continues to give to others.
1: Despite being such a widespread global epidemic, domestic violence is an isolating experience. It somehow manages to convince survivors like me that they are alone, that hope and support and closure are just pipe dreams, and that even if it's out there, justice I mean, not often do we feel we deserve it, or that's ours stuck wire. That's why talking about domestic violence like this is so important, and I am not just referring to greasy details of abuse of court dates or meetings with police officers or restraining orders, but also what happens afterwards. I feel it's my responsibility to talk about my experiences. It is my power. With my word, I hope to give other women the confidence to use their own.
3: There is a hidden crime wave in this country. It's killing an Australian woman every week and leaving the many survivors with the most horrible physical and psychological scars. Domestic violence is the crime hiding in the shadows of suburbia in our towns and cities, a crime shrouded in shame and secrecy.
1: When a thing goes up in flames, it becomes larger than itself. Have you ever seen a building as it sways alight, it swells. It's some kind of ominous, fiery silhouette. A single tree can quickly turn into a blackened forest, and a match can create blazing ripples that attach themselves to whatever fabric they can find in their path. That's the thing about fire. It moves, and it travels. When my husband invited something red and ablaze into our home, he didn't realize he had summoned something larger than himself. There is something burning, still. This I can admit, but it is within me now. And I use this power, this heat, to assist other women, to help them locate the strength I found during my time in the Burns unit, the driving force I had to leave.
2: You know, it's really case by case as to whether the attending nurse, for example, will pick up on certain signs and instead of just giving pamphlets, maybe put them in touch with someone who can actually become like a caseworker or even just do something like take them through a safety plan and tell them what it would be if they were to leave or change their situation, whatever that would look like.
1: That's Arthur Jess Hell. Speaking to the complexities of long-term hospital stays when it comes to survivors of domestic violence.
2: You know, rather than just saying, here's a phone number, did you want us to call a refuge for you? You know, all these things that sound so scary to a lot of women who are in these situations. Unfortunately, what we see too often are people in hospitals who believe it's not their job to take the woman through all these different steps that it's their job, if they see signs of it, to alert them to services that are available, but not to necessarily relay their fears or take them through it. A lot of people working in these hospitals may not even know who or where to refer these people to or what the likely process will be for that woman. For example, one woman, Nicole Lee, who I spoke to, she's disabled, and I've learnt so much from her about this whole process. She's in a wheelchair Her partner slash carer, in inverted commas, was being horrifically violent to her. She was in hospital for anorexia. She stopped eating as a way to have some control over her life. But also, hospital was like a respite for her. It was a place she could go to be safe. But when she was offered refuge by the hospital workers, her thoughts initially were, well, I have two teenage sons, and boys apparently are not allowed in refuge. That's what she thought. And you know, look at me, I'm disabled, I'm eating through a tube. If I go to a refuge, do you think they're really gonna let me hang on to my kids?
1: Like the woman she referred to, I too feared what it meant for institutions such as hospitals and law enforcement to get involved in my case. Would they take my children away? Would they see me as a worthy mother?
3: It's so important for any nationality to walk into a hospital and see someone like them. I reckon that would work magic. People just want to know that there's someone there that can understand what they're going through. And so, you know, a white nurse wouldn't get her situation at all.
1: That's Ashley Donahue, domestic violence awareness advocate, educator and survivor. She speaks to the issues that First Nations women face when it comes to violence in this country.
3: For Aboriginal women, the, the responsibility to keep themselves and their children safe is beyond, like, in, in Australia, who's looking after Aboriginal women and their children? They've got to keep themselves away from the perpetrators, from the, the systems that are in place, from everyone. And, you know, who, who's, who's taking care of them? And this goes back to colonisation. That's what happened there. It was, it was, you know, women that were being raped and, and having, um, you know, fair-skinned babies and then those babies were being ripped from their arms. And then the responsibility was why didn't you keep your children safe? Why aren't you looking after your children? You can speak to nurses, they'll say that when they've um, helped Aboriginal women, as soon as they're stitched up or fixed up, they'll leave. And that's it's not because they're being disrespectful or because they don't want to heal, it's because they've got kids at home that they need to, to look after and keep safe the best that they can in those situations.
1: Hospitals exist as sterile cocoons, the sort of places we retreat to, swollen, weary and burned. What we aren't prepared for though, is the re-entering. In a space as timeless as hospital, it's hard to imagine the sort of lives we will be able to lead once out. Will our lives start right away? How is it possible to return to the same world that continued to rotate while we were slowly healed? To our families, our children, to the echoes of abuse.
2: I'll lose my kids, I can't go through with it. Now, instead of actually talking her through what this would look like, they just left it at that. And worse, they actually called her partner to come and collect her after knowing and having him actually say in a therapy session at the hospital that he was raping her in her sleep. You know, there was no question as to what was happening in that scenario. So that's the worst case scenario. Well, actually not even the worst case. You know, they are actually abiding by policy And there are other examples of hospital workers who do take the opportunity to go above and beyond their station, which is what all hospital workers should be prepared to do in the moment. Because what we know is that there are moments and they may last two or three minutes where a woman is willing to entertain the notion of an alternative. Now that alternative might be leaving. It might be talking to someone about it. It could be anything that is outside of being in total secrecy. And if you don't take advantage of that moment, it doesn't matter whether or not it's your job. The next person who comes along, whose job it is, that woman may not be in the same space anymore. She may not want to do that.
1: This moment that Jess Hell speaks of is one every survivor knows well. When a small change takes place deep inside us. Something like breathing air for the first time in a long time. It may not even be that, It may be hardly inspiring, but it's acknowledgement of some kind that there is no way to keep going this way. That one might die here and this is not where one wants to die.
0: Rosie, what advice would
1: you give to any women watching at home who are living with violence?
2: Um, You know, advice, is it a good thing? I would say you stay safe but it will never get better. And you deserve more. You deserve to live a life where you can wake up every day and not have to worry about the day ahead. What decisions you have to make, whether you're keeping yourself or your children. You know, there is a life that you don't have to
1: live. That's Rosie Batty in Q&A in February 2015 making sure survivors know that they deserve a whole lot more than this.
2: So it's so important for people in positions of authority to take those opportunities, connect to the woman, and to have the knowledge on board to know what to do when different women present with different issues. If it's a visa issue, or whether or not they're disabled, whether they need extra help in the home in order to leave. It just feels so urgent for the medical system to update and be ready for that.
1: One thing that shifted in my hospital stay was my relationship to the word no. I could say it. Finally, if a nurse was too rough or invasive or required something of me I wasn't willing to give at that given time, I was safe enough to refuse. It was my decision to decide what was and wasn't done to my body. I learned not to fear the repercussion of it, of what it meant to create boundaries, to assert space, With every no came more and more strength. With every no came control. And so when I received a phone call from an uncle, apparently when a nurse entered my room to tell me that there was a call waiting.
0: Roya, there's a phone call for you from your uncle. Would you like to take it?
1: Somebody on the line who insisted he was a relative. I knew to trust my gut. There was no uncle waiting for me on that line. Only him, my husband. When this man held a match to my body, his readiness to douse me in hate, in his hate, in his prejudice, in his cruelty, only then to watch me burn as I held our child was enough. I didn't owe him my warmth. I never did. i tell you what he said, but I can't. I didn't take the call. I said no. I want to thank Jess Hill and Ashley Donahue for their participation in the first episode of this season of Tinder, as well as for their work generally. Both of them shine a light on domestic violence in this country and how it stands as a national crisis. The season is supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria and UNESCO, Melbourne City of Literature, and is kindly sponsored by Victorian Women's Trust. An advocate for violence prevention, Fair wages for equal work and equal representation of women, men and gender diverse people in the decision-making process that shapes our lives. You're listening to Tenda, a Broadway production about what happens once women leave abusive relationships. This season is created by Madison Griffiths, Beth Atkinson-Quinton and me, Roy Atmar. Until next time.
2: Broadwave. Broadway, Broadway,
1: Broadwave.
2: Broadwave. <laughs>